Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to one of my favorite bands of all time, Yola Tango, for the intro music. We have Chris Shepard, chef of Hay Merchant, Georgia James, One Fifth, and Yubi Preserve in Houston. One of the best chefs in the country, one of the best ambassadors for the food of Houston and its community, uh, the founder of Southern Smoke, one of the national charities, the very few national charities that represent and take care of hospitality workers, literally giving money to people in need. It's really important to know about Chris Shepard, his life, and how we got to where he is today and his philosophy because he's a truly important chef in American gastronomy. And it's still important to know these things because you know, we need people like Chris Shepard to become the leaders on a national level. He already is a leader in the Houston level. And I believe how he's operating his restaurant group and what he believes in needs to be sort of championed at a, a national level. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get him on this podcast to talk about how his team in Houston is operating as Texas is, I think, the second state to reopen its doors and end quarantine and to serve a dining public. And he has been doing this longer than most. And he's a great operator, one of the best out there. And he was very, very gracious to share a lot of his insights as the do's and don'ts. And it's really the struggle of reopening your doors. So both as a diner and if someone works in the restaurant industry, I feel like there's a lot to to learn from Chris. And, uh, you know, he got the New York Times food section front cover treatment in February 2020. I highly recommend you check that out. I highly recommend that you also buy his book, How to Cook Like a Local. Um, man, oh, if you look on his Instagram page, you'll, you'll hear like when you listen to this podcast, like you'll see like his mind is always churning and him and his team came up with a great idea of wheeling in these glass partitions that give the diner sort of space and a, a divider while they're eating, even if you're in close quarters. And I didn't quite understand it when he explained it to me on the podcast, but now I do. If you see it on his Instagram page, really brilliant. And that's the kind of ingenuity we're going to need to keep our diners and our employees safe. I know that restaurants are reopening their doors across the country, if not already, but in the next couple of weeks or so. I really encourage everyone to please have their employees wear masks and the diners to wear masks, even if you're dining outdoors, to be socially distant as much as possible and uh, to be safe. COVID-19 isn't going away, guys. And the best thing we can do, I think, is to keep a very, very thoughtful reminder of our actions because I think the worst thing we can do is try to get someone sick because obviously this isn't a COVID-19 podcast, but it's something I think about a lot. And uh, all we need is, we can't have one restaurant deciding to sort of forego the standard operating procedures in a post-COVID world because you can't just open up your doors. And I've already heard from a number of friends that restaurants are just opening their doors like it's February 2020 and they don't give a fuck. And I think that's total bullshit. And I think that is, uh, I'm not going to say anything else about that. I just think it's fucking wrong. But I want to talk about a few other things. We are seeing these protests continue, and I don't know why, but I just wanted to share with you, you know, one of the things that I, I wound up studying quite a bit in college, and 
it's something I've continued to engage with throughout my life was um, Henry Thoreau's civil disobedience that was instrumental, that's debatable, to Gandhi's Satyagraha and Martin Luther King's civil rights movement. And this isn't going to be a history lesson. I just wanted you guys to, if you're listening to this, to study what Gandhi did with the Salt March and what he sort of coined in this sort of uh, synthesis of words, Satyagraha, which I guess translates to um, clinging to the truth or adherence to the truth. And this is something I studied a lot. And it's like relying on truth to be the catalyst for change, to lean so hard into it, to lean so heavily in living and acting the right way in truth. Because that's what satya means in Sanskrit. To live in such a morally righteous way of nonviolence, of love, of being the best version of yourself that it would break the spirit of the oppressor or the evildoer. And it's a very powerful thing. It's to be so in tune with uh, an idea of truth and to be the living embodiment of it that you can change the situation without having to resort to hate or violence. And I studied a lot of this shit, and I'm by not an expert at all, guys. But I, I'm continually reminded of this when I see the news and the protests. And um, I want, if you're so interested, just to study it, to Google it, just to see what it's about. Because I thought the salt march is a very important part in history because ultimately it led to the independence of India from British rule. And the world opinion changed and was supportive of India getting its independence. And I, I think that this is a roundabout way of me basically saying, I think these protests are working. I am genuinely moved when I see soccer players in Europe wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts. You see the protests in New Zealand and Paris and Amsterdam and the world over. It gives me hope. It gives me hope. And I hope that it remains nonviolent. I think it is one of the most powerful things that you can do. And I just wanted to say, if you are interested, study up on it because it was instrumental in influencing Martin Luther King. Gandhi, I think, later said that he already developed the idea of Satyagraha independently of Thoreau. Uh, I am talking endlessly about this. I'm sorry, guys, but I just wanted you guys to, to familiarize yourself because it's a powerful concept. And I think you're seeing it in action today with these protests around the country and around the world. And I want to let you know that I have total solidarity in it. In that solidarity, 207 Second Avenue, the location of Sambar, uh, original. It will be now down in the South Street Seaport whenever we can move it. But we have a lease until the end of January. And we've decided as a company of Momofuku to repurpose it to a takeaway delivery place. And for three days, we donated sales to Black Lives Matter Greater New York, Equal Justice Initiative, founded by the great Brian Stevenson, who I hope wins a Nobel Peace Prize one day, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And we were selling spicy rice cakes and vegan rice cakes for $15 a pop. And uh, I think you can still donate to it. I think uh, we did something that was beautiful. And I came into New York to see the team. And I haven't seen my team in a long time. And I didn't see everybody, but 
I didn't think I'd get that emotional. And um, I was really proud of everybody. And I, if I'm forgetting some names, I'm sorry. But to see Jeannie, Mark, Sean, Joe, James, JJ, uh, Ryan, Nick, Serena, Sarah. I mean, the list goes on. But I miss them. And it was great to see how thorough we were operating. I felt safer in that restaurant than I did outside as the the level of cleanliness and precautions that we were taking. Man, it was, um, it was a, they were all a sight for sore eyes and I wish I could have hugged every single one of them. And uh, to be able to taste that food was beautiful. To taste Momofuku again made me incredibly emotional and I just wanted to take this time to tell them Thank you guys for doing this and thank you for raising money for these amazing causes. I have a lot more to say, but I just want to say thank you guys. Thank you to everybody for listening to this podcast. And I also wanted to say thank you to all the messages we've been receiving for the past few podcasts, specifically the one that Chris Yang, myself, and Isaac Lee recorded about Asian American solidarity or the lack thereof and the conversations people need to have with their parents, their own community. And I think it's probably the best thing that we can do if you are an immigrant or someone that is watching the Black Lives Matters movement from the sideline. I think the one thing you can do is sort of stop the model, minor- model minority myth and challenge your, your loved ones, your church congregations, your friends to wake them up to the reality of what's happening. And I thought that podcast was just a very honest conversation amongst friends, but I'm genuinely moved at the reception that it's received from the Asian American community. So if you haven't listened to that, please check it out. And the best thing you can do, in my opinion, for solidarity in the Asian American community to support Black Lives Matters is to get your local community on the same page. And I know that's hard. I know that how hard that is. I'll say no more than that. I have talked longer than I wanted to because I wanted to get straight into this podcast with Chef Chris Shepard. He's one of the very, very best. Stay safe, Chris. Check out all of his restaurants in Houston and uh, good luck with the reopening, everybody. I am speaking with my good friend, one of the best chefs in America, Chris Shepard, of several restaurants in in Houston. He's one of the the central figures in the Houston scene. And um, I wanted to speak to him because Texas was one of the very first restaurants that reopened. And there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast from the industry and outside the industry, both as diners and as, as professional cooks. And I, I want us to continue to get some information and education as to how that all works out. And I know that New York and LA are have a LA is already opened up, but we're we're still waiting. So many people are not opening up yet because they want more information and protocols in place, and, and just to make sure that it's all right to do. And uh, we've all had to change our operations. Chris has been pivoting since the very beginning, and. Uh, I wanted to share his insights. Um, he's one of the most, again, I, I've said it, but he's, he's truly a good person uh, on top of being a great chef. And I think that we can all learn a lot from him. So welcome, welcome, 
Chris Shepard. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. We recorded a podcast three and a half months ago, maybe like two, three weeks before, and we never really got a chance because yeah. it just, <laughs> it's literally a different world. <laughs> it's amazing how much so it is, though. You know, it, it was, I mean, we, we flew up to New York and we were there for a couple of days and did the podcast. And then all of a sudden, like three weeks later, a month later, everything in the world is a completely different place. When did you know that you had to make some sort of dramatic changes? <laughs> it was really awkward. I can't believe we were actually allowed to do it. But um, we went to Switzerland and uh, did a, a a couple of dinners up on top of a mountain in early February. And it was it was beautiful. But like, you know, we're in this serene ski valley thing up on top of this mountain doing a dinner and like the last day we're there, you know, the cooks looked at me and was like, hey, did you did you hear that town in Italy got shut down? Like the borders closed. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, that's like 30 minutes from here. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, Well, it's time to get on a train and head the other way. And that's exactly what we did. And we came back home and I was like, man, that was amazing. And then like two, three days later, it was like no more international travel got shut down. And it was it was one of those things like this is all happening and it's happening fast. And uh, Did you have the same sort of sense of sort of, I don't want to say dread, but same sort of knot in your stomach when uh, the flooding happened? <laughs> um, when Harvey came through, at least you knew that was going away, right? You could see the waters recede. You could see um, people getting back at it. And, and right now it's, uh, you know, once, once the waters receded, everybody got back and rebuilt and, um, made their lives what it was supposed to be. And, and now it's nobody, you can't see that. You can't know when, you know, when is your neighbor going to feel, you know, comfortable enough to go to the grocery store, or go out for dinner or any of that. You know, it's, it's so it's, it's, a, it's a weird time. You know, you had Southern Smoke before Harvey, but Southern Smoke sort of morphed into something that was a great aid for the culinary industry post-Harvey. Yeah. And it's I now mean, had to transform again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we transformed, you know, before Harvey, it was, it was dedicated towards MS. And then at Harvey, we made the decision to change it over and to, uh, I mean, it still benefited MS. It still does. Um, but uh, all of our actions right now are towards the hospitality relief fund. And it, we found a way to let people, um, apply and and then they would go through a verifying committee and then an awards committee and and we would be able to grant funds and that started post harvey um and that that it was really kind of a weird thing like having 250 applications come through and you're like wow that's so many you know we were able to grant out half a million dollars for harvey since covid we had 25,000 applications come in wow and and it's a you know in uh, I guess 10 or 11 weeks at this point. Um, Southern Smoke is granted to a, a, th- a little over a thousand families, um, $2 million. And, and just quickly, if you want to donate to Southern Smoke, what's the, what's the information? Southernsmoke.org. And, um, you know, again, like to me, one of the benchmarks of, of an individual is when they host an event and how gracious of a host and how welcoming are they. Uh, I've done a lot of events in my lifetime, and I think Southern Smoke is right up there. It's the very, very best of them. And Thank um, you very much. We never wanted to lay a lot on people to do. 
Um, we want people to come in and see our city and, and see, meet our Houstonians and, and, uh, not have to work hard, you know, cause a lot of these events you go and you just, man, you just, it, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of cost. It's a lot of everything. And, you know, that was the one thing that we never wanted to do. We always wanted to make sure the chefs were really taken care of because that's what people are here to see, you know, and that's the, that's the opportunity for our city to be able to meet you guys. And so that was, that was always the goal. And with Southern Smokes, uh, like, uh, fundraising efforts, what's the end goal? Like, how do, how do we keep on? I don't think we'll ever stop, you know, um, right now it's just looking at the, the numbers. It's like we've been able to grant 3.7 million over the past five years and, um, you know, 2 million just during COVID. And it's like I said, if we keep going and, and every application is not every application gets, uh, awarded, you know, cause it, it's, it's not like the regulations and rules are that hard, but it's just like, say you have a job. Let me see your problems. Let me see like that you've been working in the industry for six months. And once it goes to the awards committee, they, they deem what it that is. And, um, but just rough numbers, if we're going to do this, like we need $36 million, $36 million to make sure, to make sure everybody's right, you know, but at right now we've gone through, you know, emergencies, life threatening things. Um, you know, a lot of it is, is now like dropping off of people getting back to work. Um, and, and, you know, having gotten, uh, unemployment and being able to pay their bills. Uh, but it's, it, you know, I think that, uh, it's not going to stop for a long time. We've got a long way but to go. That's what I wanted to get to. What was the, like the fundraising mm-hmm. goal is 36 million. Uh, I, I don't think it'd ever be, it'll be more than that forever. Forever. Um, but like, because for this, it's going to take a lot because, you know, even like in Texas, we're, you know, opening up our restaurants and, and but it's, it's, uh, I think there was a little bit of break when um, everybody got that first round of PPP, mm-hmm. if you were lucky enough to get it. But now that's starting to end, and restaurants are going to have to start making really tough decisions again. So, uh, you know, that you, we could see another spike with uh, Southern Smoke. So, and if if I mean we got hurricanes, <laughs> like God, knock on wood. Um, there's a lot of things that could happen, <laughs> you know, and so. Um, it's better to have more than not enough and we'll never co- stop going and we'll always keep raising money because there's always going to be a need for folks in our industry to, uh, to have a, have that safety net. So please, you know, I, I, I know that there's incredibly worthy causes and donations. And if you can, please donate to southernsmoke.org. It's one of the very few, I would say national organizations that can help out. Uh, those in need in the hospitality industry. So yeah, um, it goes to farmers, delivery drivers, uh, cooks, waiters, anybody. And now, now we know what the number is. We got We got to hit thirty-six million guys. <laughs> it's a big number, but we keep going, and it's just a, it's just a number, you know. And that's if right. you don't start, you'll never get there, and that's the biggest thing. And one of the reasons I, I, I very much wanted to talk to you was for you to give myself as we sort of figure out how to open our doors and anyone that's in the industry or diner, like what has been the process since you guys have pivoted? Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's what you did three months ago is not going to be what you're doing tomorrow. Um, and that's probably the, the biggest bit of information and insight that I could actually say it is finding other means and other ways. Um, Cause even 
you know, we're at 50 percent occupancy. When we were told we could go to 25 percent occupancy, we just I didn't even look at it. Like I was like, it does, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, and then 50 percent. And then next week we're, we're going we're able to go to 75 and, you know, have patios. And but that's all well and said. Um, but it's understanding that when you have half of your dining room open, that doesn't mean that 100 percent of the people want to go out. Right. And that's, that's really the biggest thing. You know, it's like, how do you set your dining room so that people feel safe? How do you set table turn times? Like we've tried everything. We've seen everything from where a lot of places are allowing an hour and a half per, per table. I've seen where people keep all of the tables in the dining room, but then they'll just put like a black linen across one that is not being used for distancing purposes. Um, I've seen it to where, people will go in with a six foot stick and just kind of turn circles. And then that's where they'll put their, their tables. Um, so as you have to be creative, but it's also finding outsourcing of income and different ways to make money. Um, Cause at the end of the day, you still have to pay your staff. You know, you want to be able to make sure everybody has a job. You want to make sure that um, you're going to get through until this is uh, if it is ever over. Right. We don't know. But um, I think, you know, especially in whatever city you're in, uh, dealing with your landlord and, and trying to get some rent abatement is key. Um, I know, you know, from what we've talked to ours, like, yeah, we'll give it to you, but it'll come off on the backside and maybe your lease, it gets extended a little bit longer. Um, that's just one thing that you have to look at and be okay with. But, um, you know, for us, it was, what is the protocol, right? What is our protocol for uh, standards, uh, for, uh, making our guests feel comfortable, but it's not necessarily always about the guests. It's more about making your staff feel comfortable and understanding that at the end of the day, that's the most important thing, right? You're going to serve food, but your staff has to be safe. And so, um, you know, we, we tried, we thought about it, like taking temperatures of every guest that comes in the door. Um, and it just doesn't make sense. It's there for them to do it. We take our staff temperatures. Um, we make sure our staff works clean, as always. You know, it's just the same precautions that you had before. Just now it's, um, you'll find um, tables all throughout the dining room with, you know, sanitizing solution on it and everything gets wiped down. We, from when the guest walks in the door, this is what they'll see. Um, we have one of our hosts stand at the very, at the front and as they walk in, we check their reservation, make sure that they have one because we don't allow walk-ins right now um, unless we have a space to seat them. Um, we sanitize them, you know, test your hands and we just, I, one of our distilleries, I bought 50 gallons of hand sanitizer and I bought a bunch of these little pump bottles, not the pumps, but the spray, the atomizers, because those actually work better for that kind of sanitizing. Um, they're sanitized, taken to their table. The only thing that's set on their table, white tablecloth. And another one of those squirt bottles, those little atomizers with hand sanitizer, at which that is theirs for the evening and it's theirs for them to take home. Um, and we do that across all concepts. We want to make sure that like, you know, they're forever. Like it's hard to just find hand sanitizer. Well, I'm going to give you some, take it home with you, do what you need to spray it in your car. I don't, I don't really care. It's yours. Um, but I need you to understand that we actually value your safety and we want you to be safe with our staff as well. Um, we tried with the gloves, but I think gloves are just a false 
you know, cooks all wear gloves, but servers uh, only during certain points where we're removing plates and taking the dishes to the kitchen, but um, not during normal service. Um, but uh, every table, when you sit down, once you get there, we bring um, a heat sealed bag with your napkin and two forks, a knife, a steak knife and a spoon. It's yours for your set for your evening. If you need more, we'll get it for you. Um, but we don't want to just have random silverware just laying around. Um, and then we have our menus on QR codes. So you get a laminated uh, sheet that basically has the dinner menu, the wine list, and cocktail list, and spirits list. And I'm not sure that I'll ever go back to a printed menu hmm. just because it gives me the flexibility and the ability to take something and put something on the menu on a moment's notice and nobody would ever know. You know, I just think about, you know, a steakhouse wine list. That's like 40 pages. Yeah. So if Matt has to reprint it, that's 20 of those times 40. And everyone's got their cell phone on the table anyway. You don't go to your table without putting it on, you know. You set it right next to you. So at this point, just put your little thing on, look at your phone. That's what most of the time people are doing at dinner anyway, yeah. is looking at their phone. So read the menu, read the wine list. We have some that are, uh, you know, just like, the pages and then stapled because we have to get rid of them because if not you put your wine list in the quarantine for i think five days is what we're doing and so i don't even have that many wine lists that if everybody in the dining room wanted one i couldn't give them another one tomorrow um so it, it's, how are you tasting wines like when you open up a bottle we let the guests do it <laughs> the, the guests are responsible our psalms will smell it um or they'll take it over to decan if it's something older um, and they'll pour a taste for themselves and make sure it's good and then take it to the table. But um, it's, it's, you know, it's very cautious on every turn. Because uh, we still, you know, we've, we've had this conversation. Like, cooks still taste food. Um, you know, some of those things just won't go away for, for me unless I can figure out a better way. Because I still need them to make sure it's perfect. I just hate using all the plastic spoons on the face of the planet. But, you know, that's how it's going to work. So... And uh, this is incredibly illuminating um, because like you can pace it out in your head only so much. And for mm -hmm. you to have the reps, I, I think that I just honestly thank you for telling us all this. Yeah. I mean, that's just the half of it. <laughs> like, we, uh, you know, I, I've seen it where people, if you need to go to the restroom, they would like you to tell them before you do. Um, I'm not going to go to that extent. I'm going to, we have a restroom attendant that takes care and sanitizes the restrooms after every after every single person goes. Um, we started by one person in the restroom at a time, and then we would sanitize the restroom every time. And now we just go every 10 minutes, and it just keeps going and going and going. And then we just have uh, a, a bussers that are always going around and, and wiping down and sanitizing everything. Um, all touch points, all air surface areas. Um, our wine glasses aren't hung on the wine glass racks in the dining room anymore. They are definitely in the back. They're polished and brought out. Um, we are now, uh, as of next week, we'll have, we bought, um, these basically four foot by five foot glass rolling carts. It's basically to break it up, um, and just to help break up airflow and to, so, so that when we do next week, we're allowed to go to 75% occupancy in our dining rooms which means you start to shrink the tables in, right? 
And everybody is kind of a comfortable distance at six feet. But what happens when you're back to, I mean, even like, I don't know how New York and other cities that are like really small restaurants. Um, I mean, we're going to have that problem with preserve. We'll never be able to go a hundred percent. I don't think, but um, we have these rolling glass panels that we can put in between tables so that you are in essence in your own little courtyard. You can be walled in. So uh, if somebody across the room sneezes, you don't like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's, it's a sense of comfortability, but if you do know somebody, it's basically like they can walk by and stick their head over their fence and be like, Hey man, what's going on? How are you? And then they can keep going. Right. If people haven't been to Houston, it is big, <laughs> big, big, <Yeah>. big spaces. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and that's the reality is what works for one restaurant just physically, logistically probably won't work for another. And no, Houston's blessed to be social distance to begin with. I mean, we, everything's on a lot of land. We drive everywhere. You know, you don't worry about public transportation with your staff as much, you know, because everybody's driving. And so I think the, the bigger cities that have the, the more infrastructure of, of uh, public transit is, is a very cautious thing. I, I worry about that. And I don't know how that works. We, 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 are, we are wrestling with that uh, right now. It's got to be hard. <laughs> it is uh, something else right now. Um, how are you dealing with guests that, I mean, what is the law in Texas? You don't have to wear a mask, correct? Can you, mm-hmm. can you prevent someone from coming in if they're not wearing a mask? No. No. So no. are most people sans masks in the dining room? Yeah, they don't wear them. I mean, they, they'll come in with them. And, and then once they sit down at their table, it's off. You know, and, and, and that's fine. You know, it's like we're protecting our staff. Uh, there's not a lot of, you know, and, and, and this is the, probably the hardest thing to talk about. Like, it's not the hard thing, hardest thing. It's probably the hardest thing to deal with is you're talking about hospitality, mm-hmm. Right. And the the meaning of hospitality and just being genuine um, is really hard to see with just your eyes. You know, the smile, the facial structure, like, hey, how are you guys doing? And so you have to be more over exuberant at less amount of times, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like when you're greeting somebody, you have to, you know, it's all hand gestures. It's like, it's so good to have you guys because they can't see the smile. They can just see your eyes. And so you also don't want to, have your staff go back and hang out the whole time. It's more of an interaction at this point. Um, so your servers are all wearing masks in the dining room? Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> when, I, when I went and got them made for by the person, like with the oldest family-owned business in Houston is a shirt company, Hamilton Shirts. And so I went and got Hamilton masks made for them. And one of my managers makes masks. And so everybody has their masks up, you know. And in the kitchen, they use the... Uh, the surgical masks because they'll go through them a lot faster, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, every one of them. Cooking with a mask cannot be easy. Calling tickets and hearing cooks respond has been difficult. You can definitely hear, uh, the chefs talking a lot louder now. Um, and it goes into the dining room and I was sitting there last night at George James listening to it. And I was like, hope this doesn't bother anybody, you know, because you're also, the things that you never had to realize and take in consideration when your pack, when your dining room is packed is that music volume versus people and body interaction. It's, you can hear everything now. And so when the cooks talk a little bit louder, it definitely travels throughout the dining room, but I'm okay with that. What do you do about water glasses? Is that, that nothing's pre like nothing, nothing's Mm-mm. preset anymore. No, 
That table, all it has is is that one sanitizer bottle. That's it. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that your friends in the Houston area um, are probably taking this way more, I wouldn't say seriously, but um, I would imagine there are other restaurants in, in Texas that are not doing any of these precautions that you are doing. Is that a correct <laughs> statement? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the wheels fell off a long time ago, I think. I mean, when we were, when we were closed, we had a guy not too far from here just say to hell with it. I'm opening the restaurant. And he did it against what we were told to do. And you know what? People went. And it was like, I can't believe it. You know, like, this was before we were even allowed to do the 25%. It was his decision. He was like, you know what? I'm going to open. And he did. And he was in a small little town that uh, inside of Harris County, inside of Houston, there's all these little pockets of small neighborhoods that have their own jurisdiction, if you will, city inside of a city. And so he was in a smaller city and he was like, you know what, I'm doing it. And he did it and it's fine. And then, and, and, you know, some of the bigger restaurants here are doing the same thing. Just, you know what, you're not supposed to sit at the bar. Well, full bar seats, full tables, full dining room, no masks on the servers. Wheels are gone. And it's, uh, that's their decision. And they're busy. And that's the thing that is like, I hope we don't go backwards at all. Because mm-hmm. we went as an industry as far as we could, right? And it's still going as far as we can go. Let's take it and to, to find out how, how fragile our eggshell really is. And, and if we go back, it, it's not going to work for any of us. Like if, 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 you know, in a month someone says spikes are up, restaurants are closed again. Um, it's, it, it, it will, you can't come back from that. So what are your thoughts on, you know, a a good sentiment from people I've spoken to, you know, the prevailing sort of sentiment is getting back to February of 2020. And I think people are getting a little bit more acclimated to that idea that it's not going to happen. But it's this idea that the industry was broken to begin with. And this is an opportunity to change all the things that sucked about it. Do you think that we will even be able to get to that ability, the the opportunity to change these things because we're so busy trying to figure out how to operate in a COVID world? Because... I mean, I'll just say it, you know, the, it was a bubble. It was a bubble. Mm-hmm. There was not enough innovation. People were still trying to just open a restaurant in the four walls of a restaurant without really thinking about how do I do this smarter and better? How do I improve the livelihoods of everyone around me? How do I make it more equitable? And these are the questions that I have, and I know that you have, is, 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 is how do we make sure that we do this better than before? It's, I mean, it's, it's hard right now. Um, and just getting back to the normalcy of what, what we felt the restaurant industry was before is, is, I don't know how that works. Um, I, you know, when we first closed, um, you know, we, we never really closed. Right. So we were blessed to have a really killer grocery store here in Texas called HEB. And they let us and asked us if, you know, we were doing as much to go food as we could. And they asked us if we wanted to put food in the grocery stores. And 
And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. We're going to. And it really helped keep us afloat. Um, but we, we did this in a system to where it was all of our management staff. We did four days on, four days off, two teams. Nobody ever interacted outside of those two teams. Um, if you wanted to have dinner at your house with one of your, with one of your people, they had to be on your team. Like it was, you never talked to any, you know, you never even went up to the restaurant, never walked in the restaurant when the other team was there. It was very, um, yeah, awkward. Um, cause it's like, I didn't see most of my managers for six weeks. Um, but you know, we had a lot of conversations after our shift was over after making these prepackaged meals that I never thought I'd do. Um, and, and the conversation was, well, how do we, since we are basically have erased everything, how do we re re rewrite it back to make it make sense? How do we go to a system where cooks can make more money and the, 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 the disparities can can sort of equal out because even when we come back, like wait staff aren't going to make the money that they were making. Yeah, that, that, that's what I want to ask is like, how do we tackle that problem? Is that because the government's not going to give us any ideas to how to pay front of the house people more than they were making before, because that's the reality. Mm -hmm. We have to start to pay people like effectively union wages, right? That's my goal without, ever having to be a union because we're operating at a higher level than a union could ever be. That's my like dream. Yeah. How do you take care of servers where so much of their income comes from tips? Obviously the solution is a, a no tipped house, no tipping policy, uh, which is easier to do outside of New York, New York city specifically. But if you do that, then you alter the economics of everything else. So a soda is now $7 or $5, then say $2. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you tackle this problem of front of the house pay? <laughs> it's, I, I, we sat for hours and hours and hours, and I was like, "Look, I can't personally figure this out." <laughs> like, and I know that other restaurants that are much better than me have tried to figure this out, and I would love for it to happen. But if we need to all come together to make that decision, because you know, and, and the conversation really rolled back to servers aren't going to make what they were before, right? And so everybody's going to have to learn how to live a little bit differently because, you know, the banquet money is not going to be there. The big party spenders aren't going to be there. The, the, the you know, not as, not as frequently as they were before. I mean, especially in Houston, because we not only have this going on, we, I mean, there's all sorts of things that are happening, but the oil prices in, in our city really affect us. Can you explain what happened with oil prices about a month and a half ago? <laughs> <laughs> they were basically giving it away. Um, and, and it was all in a futures market, which I understand, but because uh, that oil's got to go somewhere. And if cars aren't going and trucks aren't going, they basically just, it would be easier to dump it than it would be to sell it. And and so the market just fell right through. And um, I, I actually had to ask because I didn't quite understand. And I call one of my friends who's like one of these traders. I yeah, didn't know I that if, because <laughs> it was like, what? Like per barrel, you, it was minus 37 bucks or something like that. So effectively they would pay you $37 yeah. <laughs> to take the oil off them. Yeah, but because they don't have any place to put it. Because you, know? you actually need a, a special kind of rig. You need storage. It's just like, you can't just buy it. And you actually have to go to like this place in Kansas, pick it up and then bring it back. <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, this is insane. 
<laughs> I had so many people like, let's go buy some oil and sit on it for a while. And I was like, I don't think it works like that, man. I, I, I just don't know how you would do that. <laughs> like, you can buy all the barrels you want, I guess. <laughs> Why does that affect Houston for people that don't uh, know? Because Houston forever is an oil town. You know, we've got all the big, all the big oil companies here. And so all of our, you know, we've diversified over the past 20 years, but, um, oil is still the backbone of Texas and, and especially Houston. And so, uh, when oil goes south, I mean, it, it starts making everybody nervous. I mean, one of my best friends is I, it, randomly, I know a lot of oil company geologists <laughs> and, and I'm like, our neighbors won, our best friends won. I was like, what are you guys geologying here? And it's like, well, they, 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 but they're doing things all over the world and seeing seismic graphs. And it's super interesting to talk to them because they're, I mean, as much as we are food nerds, rock nerds are amazing. <laughs> amazing. Uh, we took this guy to Yellowstone one year as a vacation. We all went, uh, I, I've never learned so much before about rocks and, not sure I'll ever comprehend what they do either, but um, it you, they you know those are the people that start to worry about getting laid off, you know, and and um, you know our neighbor said I'm going to go. He was you know for the two months that I've seen him, big full beard, then all of a sudden clean shaven, and I was like, what's up with that? He's like, I got to go interview for my job. Wow. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's that's heavy, that's real heavy, um, and so not to make light of it by any means, but. Uh, you know, the oil business in this city is definitely why steakhouses are built in the city. And I think this is something that when I talk to people that are not in the industry and they ask me, and this is going to be a common thread in any major metropolitan city you're in, in any urban environment, I think, where you have big offices in corporate America, the disappearance of corporate expenditures at restaurants, I just don't even know what restaurants are going to do. Nah, I don't either. I don't either. Just put it on my corporate card. You know, you don't hear that anymore, you know. Um, it'll happen. It'll come back. I mean, it's slow, but sure. But, you know, it's not as fast as what we need it. And, um, you know, even for right now, I don't know about New York, but like our downtowns, like, are, aren't, there's nobody there, you know. Like, how do you, especially in a big city, any metropolitan city, like, how do elevators work in a 100-story building? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that, how does that work? Does it take you 25, 30 minutes to get to your floor because you're going one person at a time or two people at a time? Is it like, I never understood that to begin with, but the idea of jamming 10 people into an elevator, it, uh, like that, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so when offices start to come back, like most people are just gonna, like, a lot of people are just going to start working from home. Well, and that's, that's again, I guess another massive thing that I've been sort of grappling with is, as you mentioned, there's plenty of articles that the, the, the office, even a post-COVID vaccine, will not be the same. That uh, people no. are going to realize like, oh, I don't have to have everyone working here. We can be just as effective or even more effective both in productivity and in like, I guess, happiness by not going to the office. So, yep. so much of our restaurants, almost every restaurant is predicated more or less, on <laughs> proximity to office workers to some yep. degree, whether it's during lunch or after people get off of work. That happy hour business downtown isn't going to quite be the same when they're sitting at their home. So this is why we have to start asking these hard questions and figuring out 
this whole too small to fail approach because we have to have these conversations with our landlords. They're levered because they have certain metrics and numbers they have to hit because they have loans. So it's like this whole thing is a clusterfuck of clusterfucks. And I don't see a way out. Do you? It has to go. I don't, I don't really. Um, but, you know, it has to go back to the banking, banking structures and, and big bank business and how that works because our landlords are going to have to go to those banks to get forgiveness on certain things. And just like we have to have forgiveness on, on certain things. Like, I, I just, I don't understand how, like, when we signed a lease, if, if we're never able to get over 50% or 75% occupancy, I didn't sign a lease on 75% occupancy. You know, I signed a lease knowing that for the next 15 years, I'm going to do this. And hopefully I'll be so busy that I'll have people waiting. Well, now I can't have people waiting, you know? And so, I mean, if that doesn't make sense, let me explain to people, at least for my restaurant groups, 100% occupancy. We make money and we're profitable when we're 100% occupancy and we do at minimum three turns a night just for dinner service at some of our restaurants. Like, if you're not at 100% occupancy, your entire cost structure is built upon, like, you know, hitting a net revenue of, you hope, you know, over 12, 13, 14, 15%. Like, there's some restaurants that do north of 20. That's amazing, right? And delivery and takeaway is going to take a chunk of that, right? You're going to need that. But at the end of the day, once all the restaurants get back online, Takeaway delivery is not going to be such a special thing anymore. So uh, I, I have some hard times thinking about what 100% occupancy looks like versus 90%. Because even if you're 90% and you don't change your cost structure, you're going to go out of business at 90%. Yeah. Everything went up in price. But people don't understand that. They're like, oh, 90%, that's, that's great. And you're like, no, 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 no. Everything right now is predicated that we're 100% occupancy <laughs> yeah. turning and burning. Yep. But if we're at 50, you know, and, and, and even 75, but I, like with Preserve, I can't go 75. I'll never be able to get over 50, you know, um, just because I still worry about the six foot and keeping people, you know, distance yep. and what have you, you know. And, and in a city like New York where – even at 75% occupancy, it's, it's tight, you know? I, I, that, it scares me. You know, I'm, I mean that. I, I, I'm not trying to say doom and gloom. We're, we're better prepared than I think and better situated than a lot of people. But, and, and we're thankful that we have some consumer packaged goods that we've been really working on for, for, for a few years and, you know, I got I, that chili crisp the other day. Oh, in the man. Mail. I, that is delicious. I'm so happy to hear that, Chef. Thank you very much. <laughs> so delicious. <laughs> I got it in the mail. I was like, oh, buddy. I put, it on, uh, I put it on some eggs that next morning with Lindsay and myself. And she looked at me. She's like, that's just delicious. Good. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to have a stockpile of that stuff later. Thanks, on man. And, and like, again, like, I don't want to say it works for us. It's going to work for us. Like, we spent a lot of time getting that ready because we were going to release it around this time anyway. So it's like, yeah. and we have a bunch of other stuff, but like, if we don't, if we are not successful at sort of figuring out how to pivot into doing a lot of those sales via not in a restaurant, right? Yeah. I think we're in a lot of trouble. Momofuku's in a lot, a lot of trouble. And 
I can say the same thing. I'm talking to every restaurant owner that I know. You're, you're incredibly successful. We're all like, fuck, man. <laughs> How's this going to work? <laughs> it's, uh, you know what? It's diversifying yourself um, and your business to something that you didn't know about before. And, um, you know, looking at opportunities in a different way. I know that, you know, for one of the things that we've got should happening pretty soon, um, we created a, a dish, man, four or five years ago at the restaurant. And it was like, we took everything, we cured bacon as you would normally, and then ground it, stuffed it in a casing and smoked it. And so it's the flavors of, we made bacon sausage, if you will. Um, and if you haven't had Chris's charcuterie, you're missing out. I mean, you're <laughs> really a good, missing pretty good out. job at it. Um, but now that we, we, we worked with a local smokehouse here in town, um, just outside of town, Belleville Meat Markets. And, you know, did I ever think that I would put a pallet of bacon sausage in a Cisco warehouse? Nope. Did I? You're damn right I did. Um, and now it's, uh, it'll start going to retail here pretty soon. So amazing. Um, yeah. And it's just like these things that you like. We sat back as a management team and said, what is the dumbest shit you would ever do? And then let's figure out if we can do it. <laughs> so it's uh, not everything for sure. But, um, you know, like even how do you how do you utilize the Zoom platform? Yep. Right. How do you monetize that? Mm -hmm. um, and we've been working really so hard on what, that. What would you say, Chris? Because you would I know you agree with me. There's going to be a certain kind of cook, a certain kind of chef that's going to be like fucking sell out. Yeah, I don't care. Call me that. You know what? I'm going to have all my boys still. And that, and that's the goal, right? You know, I, I, I think about it a lot. You know, well, as we say, I thought about it a lot. Um, when we started to talk about these things and I was like, you know what? I'll do it. I don't care. Um, you want me to film me cooking in my kitchen? Whatever. For parties? you damn right I'll do it. I'll do it every damn night. I don't care. As long as like, my dishwashers and my bussers and my cooks and my waiters and my managers all have jobs. I don't give a shit. I'll do whatever it takes. Do you think, and, do you think we have any room left in this industry or what's left of it for that sort of culinary bravado of like, I got to be the coolest motherfucker out there that I've been guilty of? You know, you, you, you try to be cool, but like, you know what? That's some stupid shit now and probably always was. I think it is. It is the more, I, I hate to say it like this, the older you get, the more you understand that, right? That, like, as a young chef and as a young cook, like, it was like, this is how I'm going to do it, and I'm not going to do it any way different. Well, it, it doesn't really. It only works for so long. Um, and then you have to figure out a way, as your company grows and as you employ more people, because if you don't grow, then those really good people that you have leave to go do something else and and – if you can't open a restaurant with them or if you can't open, you know, something, you know, that's like, here, this is go run, you know, then then you lose that. But at some point, you got to be able to diversify yourself to be able to take care of those things mm -hmm. when something like this happens. Um, will I be able to take care of every single employee for the next year? I hope so. I really do. But I don't know. A lot you know? of I don't knows. You know, you've been in the game a long time man. you've seen a lot of younger chefs or people, not want to say younger, people that have just started out. And, and I, I, this is going to be a long-winded way of me getting to a, a certain point. But, um, <laughs> you know, would you agree, like, when you first start out making menus and, and you've been promoted from a sous chef or you're a young, am, younger, ambitious cook, 
you try to make the coolest food possible. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you get tired of seeing that from your own team sometimes? Because like, we've all been there. You, you, you're making a dish. You're like, why? Why? why did, it was good, you know, <laughs> like 50% yes. before you, you added another 50%. Like, why did you take it to the point where now it's not good anymore? Because it's too much shit. I listened to a friend of mine. His name is Mike Lotta down in Charleston a while back. And he said, what happens if you take this away? Okay, now take this away. Is it still good? Yeah. Okay, now take this away. Is it still perfect? Don't take this away. And now you're down to like four or five ingredients. Is it still perfect? Yeah. There you go. Don't put stuff on dishes just to put stuff on dishes. You know, Um, if they're that special, make a dish specifically for that technique or that flavor. But um, yes, to answer your question, um, I think a lot of times like, the cooks and chefs that have been moving with me for a long time, they kind they understand that what I like and what I don't like. And they know when I walk in, I'm going to be like, mm, and they're like, I know. That's why I'm doing this this way. And it's like, okay, good. Um, and, you know, I've got a, a, a couple of young chefs that like I'm working with. And, like, we start talking about food. And, and, and my big thing is, uh, here, I wrote this menu. Well, why did you write this menu? I just wanted to get it on paper. Well, I don't want to see that. <laughs> like, I want you to know what you want to do. And come full-fledged with it. I don't want to see partially written ideas unless you're asking me, hey, what do you think about these ideas and how do we take and develop this dish um, a little bit, you know, more refined? But that's a different story. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, what is it? Is it that or is it this is what I want to do? Because if it's this is what I want to do, then we probably need to sit down and talk and, and revamp that idea. But like, I would also, or I would probably, again, guess knowing you that uh, uh, if some, one of your cooks is like, hey, chef, I, I've been working on this. Uh, you told me to take it from, you know, paper and actually do the work. And I want to do, you know, pho soup dumplings. <laughs> and and, and that could be cool. But yeah. do you know how to make just a good bowl of pho first? <laughs> That's the, that's, the, that's the best question. Well, I gelatinized this pho broth. And I'm like, well, how is your pho broth? Like, how, how do you texture your noodles? What beef are you putting in it? Like, all of these questions, you know. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up, and whether I hope, I, I know you probably agree with me, is this mm-hmm. is a conversation that I think we need to all be having in this industry, particularly the, the restaurants that are trying to be super ambitious and, you know, in the food media Again, what we just described is not necessarily an outlier because you see it in kitchens all the time, but it's the kind of cooking that is for oneself and one's own ego versus trying to feed somebody. And if you're making dishes today, right now, in this horrible time of, you know, COVID and people understanding what Black Lives Matters is, and like you still want to make food to express yourself and only to you, this is a real problem. If you can't see like, hey, I got to make something that is delicious, nutritious, really, really full of love, you know, and like not super complicated, you got you to gotta ask yourself like these questions. And um, I hope people understand that. It's like, it's not about you right now. It's about trying to do whatever you can to, to, to keep the ship afloat to make sure that everyone else is getting paid, getting benefits simultaneously, like making something that 
isn't necessarily a true expression of who you are because guess what? Hopefully that time will come. I hope that one day that cook makes like the sickest fucking pho soup dumpling ever. I'm not saying I don't want that, but right now- I, I, I do. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we need just a really good bowl of fucking soup, man. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, the takes on classics, I want to make sure we understand classics. Um, and that's a big thing too. It's, it's like, I want to see your inspiration and your love, but I want to know when you know where it came from too at the same aspect. Because what, and this is, this is the biggest thing that, you know, we're having right now is like, what is the guests? It's balancing the line of comfortability and adventure at the same time. Because um, when you start to talk about people have been in their house for a long time, right? And Tuesday night is taco night. Wednesday night is pizza night. Thursday night is takeout Chinese. Friday night is, you know, it's it's very regimented for the most point. I mean, I found myself doing that. Uh, I, I don't really want to eat, you know, fajitas again for a little bit or uh, <laughs> take out pizza again for a while. like Or just, you know, I've tried to perfect ribs on the smoker for the past six Eight weeks, every week I cook ribs, one night a week. Is that the, the thing you cook the most in quarantine? It, it, for me, yeah. And it's like, I give, always... Give everyone the recipe. I, I want people to know this. <laughs> well, What's I the process? To, I tried a new one last week, and now tomorrow I'm going to make them again. Um, and it's... I, I, I <laughs> Come on, dude. So, this it's is like the best a dry part. Chili flake. It's Shabazi spice that I get from Lior, and then salt and pepper, and I just let the ribs marinate. And then I smoke them... At, uh, like 325 for about two and a half hours. Wrap them in plastic. What kind of wood? Uh, I use a mix of post oak and pecan and hardwood charcoal. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. And, and, um, and, and, uh, what's your smoker rig? Oh, right now I just have like the, the big, well, it's not a big green egg. It's the Komodo, Commando, Komodo. Komodo things. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, I think Aaron is shipping me one of his smokers that he's going to start testing for homes. That would be Aaron Franklin, who yeah, also Aaron Franklin, so. runs probably one of the best events, the Hot Luck in in Austin. Yeah, so much fun. Um, so I take my ribs and then throw. What them kind in of rib, what kind of what kind of ribs? You're talking to a lot of people that don't know what the fuck you're talking about, man. <laughs> I, I like loin back ribs, <laughs> so it's it's very similar to a baby back. Um, but I, I think that uh, spare ribs are good, but I'm, I'm trying to perfect the loin back rib. Why? Why specifically the loin back? Chris always has a point of view. Don't don't ever <laughs> let him just let it slide. There's so, like uh, years think, of like this is why I, I, I you got to extract it out of him. So spare ribs are good for certain things, and I think for curing and smoking they're really good. And because you've got that soft cartilage that runs along the belly line, which I think is fantastic. Um, but I, I think that just like for me on an everyday thing with like, I'm cooking for Lindsay and myself. I think a whole rack of spare ribs is enough for like three or four people with a, a loin back rib. I can get it done a little bit faster and easier. And it's perfect for the two of us, you know, um, with some leftovers. So, um, but I just started taking it. Like I had this idea the other day of like, um, I watched a video years ago with, you know, whole roasted pigs getting, cooked over a spit and brushed with coconut water. And so I, I kind of just took that idea with a bunch of chilies, cilantro and fish sauce, garlic, pureed that, and then just glazed that on those ribs. After they come out of the eddy, I put them back on the smoker at a higher temp, grill and char them. It's perfect. It might have been the happiest 
cook day that I've had because I overcooked a bunch of chicken wings at the same time, and it was just perfect. Perfect day. Have you ever cooked so much for yourself ever? It's crazy. Every time. It's, it's, it's crazy. Every time. Did I need to put four different types of sauce? You know, actually the same time. The ribs, the chicken wings, and then I, I whole smoked and glazed a, uh, a summer sausage, one of the jalapeno cheese summer sausage. You know, that stuff's not just for like eating cold. You cook that shit and it is fantastic. Um, what's the title of your book? <laughs> cook Like a Local. One of the best things about Chris is his philosophy. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Chris in every aspect of life. But one of the things that I admire most is how he thinks about food, how he sort of blends together flavors from different cultures and different cuisines, which again, most people try to do, but you know, you can do it right and you can do it wrong. And Chris figures out how to do it right. Like I know he's thinking about like that video of that coconut water. And he's like, oh yeah, like maybe not this dish, but I I mean, listen, I think our brains work very similar. I I can (laughs) see where that goes. But what I'm trying to say is the thing that's different about Chris than a lot of our contemporaries, in my opinion, is that let's just say Chris puts this menu puts this dish on the menu. Guess what? You're going to fucking know who the people <laughs> were where he took this, you know, these these ideas from and he's going to footnote it and that's such an important thing. I 1000% thought of Lawrence and Noy <laughs> from a Thai restaurant as I was putting these ribs together. 100% I'm like, so would he use the light soy? How much palm sugar? Like th- those are the things that ran through my head. <laughs> yep. No doubt about it. And, and and again, like that's, you're a rare bird, man, because <laughs> very few people would tell people where to go. Don't eat at my restaurant. Go to this restaurant first. And, yeah. and I can't think of a better, bigger cheerleader for, for Houston. Um, it's amazing what you've been able to do. So quickly before we get you out of here. Yeah. I hope to God we're, we're going to be able to travel. And I know people in Texas are probably saying like, what are you talking about? We're, we're going, we're going wherever we want to go anyway. But for those that are listening <laughs> that are like, Hey, I'm going to Houston, you know, and, and Houston's been on the food map now for the past decade. And it's one of my favorite places, favorite cities. Where do they go to eat? Give us a five minute rundown where you don't have to go to like, don't give us like a best of guide, but it's just like, what do you have to eat in Houston? So, you know, people say like, what is the dish of the city? Um, it is definitely, in my opinion, pho. And there's so many good pho spots all over the city, but uh, pho bin by night, if you're late night, awesome. Pho bin trailer down in, in Pearland, awesome. HK dim sum, crawfish and noodles, turkey leg hut. That's an experience. <laughs> turkey leg hut? What? <laughs> so, I got to know what this is. I know it's turkey, turkey leg, leg hut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of a phenomenon. I mean, it's 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 beautiful to see. It's a, a a black restaurant around the corner that does turkey legs and crawfish and and it's just like stuffed turkey legs with with like crawfish mac and cheese or dirty rice or and and it's it's lying around the block every day. And it's so beautiful. And, and, and so Captain Sin works across the street and gets our crawfish for us. Um, and so, like, we go over and see it all the time. It's awesome. Um, 
It's it's just such a beautiful thing. And the turkey legs, you know, it's it's one of those things you pick it up and it just falls off. <laughs> and it's been glazed and smoked. God, it's good. Um, preserve, one-fifth, Georgia James, yes, yes, yes. Coltivari, I think, does a really good job with pizzas. Uh, Rosie Cannonball, same thing. They're right across the street from Preserve. Um, I think Condente, which just opened up down the street. It's Tex-Mex joint, but they use mesquite on their fajitas. And then uh, I, I would definitely go down to Saigon Pagalac uh, to do the seven courses of, of beef. Um, and, and just it's, it's, it's really beautiful. I mean, Houston is, I don't know if people that haven't been understand, if you like a certain kind of eating where, I'll just say it, it's fucking, if you, if you don't want white people food, Houston's got it in spades, man. You are correct. You are correct. And it's uh, but it's, it's got all good white over. people food. There's steakhouses galore. Yeah, I mean, I have one, but um, I, I think that the the food of this city is the soul of this city because you're talking about the diversity of a city, and um, I think that the higher end restaurants are great, but the the smaller ones like T Rex and um, where like Justin can show the food that he wants to do, you know, and 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 just everybody's doing what they want and are supposed to do. Um, and, 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 you know, you talk about like the younger cooks that put everything on a plate and you see that, but not as much. You definitely see people cooking for their cultures, cooking for the people. Um, and, and that's one of the greatest things, you know, I, I can sit down, I can give you a list of for hours. Like people always say, where do I go eat? I'm like, give me a culture, <laughs> you know? And if you said like French, I'd be like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, if you said like, Pakistani. All right. Well, here we go. Let's let's go eat this. If if you say Indian, here you go. If you say on paper, Houston is the most diverse city in North America. Yeah, I don't think there's too many Mexican restaurants that you've been to that spit roast goats in the middle of the dining room. That's amazing. What's the name of this restaurant? Uh, El Hill del Guince. <laughs> it's from the region. It's it's basically um, cooking from the region of Hildago, and so they do in the dining room when you walk in on Saturday and Sundays. There's a band playing on the stage and they've got like goats over like hardwood coals going. And then in a steam jacket kettle right next to that, they've got the agave leaves and they've got lamb shoulders all in there. So that's the barbacoa of the region. And then a lady making tortillas right there. It's arguably one of the best tacos you'll ever eat. And so, and then you go half a mile or three miles, let's see, one, two, uh, one and a half miles down the street and you're in Koreatown. And so it's, it's, there's one Polish restaurant in between there. So, man, I, 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 I miss the European isn't here as much. So. I miss, I miss Houston, man. You know, Chris was in our ugly, delicious episode, the, the shrimp crawfish one where yep. we inadvertently pissed off everyone in New Orleans. Um, <laughs> I think they're all right. With me. I mean, man, like they were really mad. And I wasn't trying to, like, everyone loves New Orleans. I was just trying to say, like, Man, Houston is, yes, there's Viet Cajun in, in New Orleans. I was just trying to have the argument to let people know that when you have sort of the freedom and there's no sort of set rules, deliciousness will find its way and, and, and turn and morph into something like crawfish and noodles. And like, it's the most beautiful thing. It is the kind of environment in the world that, that accepts all. And I, I think Houston, weirdly, again, you think, at least I did before I got to know Houston, was weirdly conservative. Yes, it is. But it's also this 
this perfect blend of all this other stuff that's happening. And I just think it's beautiful. I also think, again, I, I think I know Houston a little bit better than Austin. Do you think that Houston is weirder than Austin? I mean, it just naturally is. But we don't really talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone's like, Austin's super weird. But I always think Houston's way weirder than, than Austin. No, I mean, it, it's, I think when you talk about the sprawl of Houston, it's not so condensed. Um, I think there's a lot of cool things about Austin. Um, I, I just, you know, at least in Houston, <laughs> this is going to be bad. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, listen, man, who cares right now? That's why I, I, want, I, I, want, I, want this, I want this war to start right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. It's that in Houston, if, you need, if your traffic is too bad, we're going to build a bigger freeway. <laughs> In Austin, it ain't going to happen. And so you just, you know what? If, if traffic gets too bad, you're just going to sit in it. That's how it works. And so, like, I understand, but, man, that city wants to grow really fast, and it's the, the infrastructure needs to become better, I think, because uh, everything's so packed in, so tight downtown and in the surrounding areas. And, like, uh, it's just the traffic there is I, – I, I, they say Houston traffic's bad. Maybe I just know when to drive in it. Right. And in Austin, I think it's just always there. So, um, but the food there, I think is getting better all the time. And I think, you know, um, I still don't, I, I still don't understand the food truck thing. I liked it a long time ago, but man, I'll tell you what, I, I don't want to go get a burger or a barbecue sandwich and stand in a hundred degrees. It's a real thing in, in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking hot. It is funny. Like people come down from the north in the middle of like uh you know May, June, July, and they're like, You guys, it's a hundred degrees in the shade, and you've got giant fires and you're cooking meat <laughs> outside over it. It's like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's what we do. And <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Sometimes. Man, I I, I miss you. If I knew that I wasn't going to see you for a while when we recorded that very first podcast, I would have given you a much bigger hug, my man. <laughs> I know it, man. Miss you. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, where you're at, your family and your restaurants and your, and your staff all make it through health and safe and can be happy again because smiles in the world are, are a big thing right now and they're, they're not cheap. Um, but they're free, if that makes sense, right? And that is the, the most beautiful <laughs> thing that you said, truly. <laughs> it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't take much to do it. It's just sometimes it's real hard to, and you got to remember that the world is, is a space that we can inhabit for a very long time if we take it right and do it the right way, take care of each other, love each other, and we'll all get there. I appreciate it. No, thank you, and appreciate it and take care of your people we will we will you too love you man you got it